it's okay to be angry. At some point, you just get tired of talking. The cry, I can't breathe, was heard around the world on May 25, 2020. That was the day that George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin after being arrested for allegedly passing a $20 counterfeit bill. The video of Floyd pleading as Chauvin kneeled on his neck, suffocating him while other officers stood by and watched, went viral. This visual confirmation that yet one more unarmed black man and a non-aggressive situation was murdered by the police sent shockwaves around the world. The public response was immediate. You know, you reach a point where you feel like enough is enough. It's still hard to watch that video. It's just made me fight harder. Five months later, the struggle for justice and equality for African Americans continues in people's minds and hearts, if not still in the streets. For many black Americans, this time, the call for racial justice seems different. The people have that power. That's what gives me my hope because I know that there's another generation of folks that are coming through to shake things up. Black Lives Matter. So get with the program and let's do this together because together we can do it. And this time we want results and we want real results. I'm Judith McRae with Enough is Enough. Welcome to Hope from the Front Lines. Each week, we peek beyond the headlines, finding stories of struggle, passion, and strength from essential caregivers of color doing the heavy lift, protecting Chicago's most vulnerable during this COVID-19 pandemic. I distinctly remember that morning in late May, standing in my bedroom, holding my phone, and watching the video of George Floyd being killed. I felt sick to my stomach while my chest filled with rage. Not again, I thought. When will this stop? When will the police stop targeting black people? When will the systems and structures that support these racist behaviors and attitudes be undone? I was angry, hurt, sad, and weary. Losing hope that this disease called racism in America could ever be cured. To my surprise and delight, protests demanding racial justice and a change in policing blossomed around the country and continued through the spring, summer, even fall. Support for the movement for black lives cuts across race, ethnicity, age, and class. As a black woman, I'm hopeful that this time, real justice might really happen. So I checked in with several African-American health caregivers to gauge their feelings and experiences about these times and the circumstances calling for racial justice. We've seen this thing play out over the years, even just my years of being alive. It starts with folks really just making that outcry. Then it escalates. Now we're marching and reaching out to different allies and having more and more press conferences. And it's like, at some point, you just get tired of talking. Just kind of like in the world of union, right? If the boss isn't coming to the table in good faith, what do the workers do? Sometimes it leads up until workers taking strike. That's Chandra Robinson. Chandra's a young black woman who grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago. She's been a home care provider and now is the vice president and the lead organizer for the home care division at SEIU Healthcare, a union local affiliated with the Service Employees International Union, a union of over 2 million members across the U.S. and Canada. Currently, Chandra lives in Woodlawn, 
a predominantly African-American community on Chicago's south side, near the University of Chicago. Gentrification in the neighborhood has led to more racial diversity, but some things haven't changed. Chandra says she sees police treating new white residents better than blacks who've been there longer. You know, it's very diverse, but at the same time, I can park my car outside and if you see me getting out, the cop is going to slow down. What are they doing? Where are they going? But you can see two other white guys that are getting out their car and it's, oh, hey, how are you? She says she sees police regularly stopping and questioning kids who are just gathering outside to play. We're out here dealing with COVID and with school closings, folks are out of work. So you're going to see groups of kids outside. Why would you automatically assume they're up to no good? Suspicion and harassment by police are common in Chicago's black neighborhoods. Costin Plummer is a home care aide living in Inglewood, also on the south side of Chicago. He cares for his elderly mother and a brother who has disabilities. He also has a family of his own. I have a four-year-old daughter. She's scared of the police because I didn't shield her from seeing that video of George Floyd. And that's kind of messed up because she's four. And this is her first introduction to the police. You know, kids are just brutally honest. So she asks, why, why did that happen? Why is it keep happening? Why is it, why is it happen? Why did he do that? Why he just couldn't get up off and let the man breathe? You know, and so when you mess up kids at the age of that young, you know, that's where you get that. And then people say, oh, the looting and uh, they're so angry because people didn't know how to channel that energy. They was just angry. Police brutality is personal for Costin. His brother was tortured by John Burge, the now deceased Chicago police commander and detective who was accused and convicted of torturing more than 200 innocent men to get them to make false confessions. I go back to Burge. It is men that are still dying in prison under his reign. And we haven't even went back and cleaned that mess up. When you bring that up to, to someone at the top, they just kind of like try to hide it under a chair like it never happened. Like it never happened. Like it was just one bad road cop. This guy trained officers. This is what they did. They tortured. They beat you until you sign something. And so that's known in my area. Everybody got a family member, know of a friend, or know of someone that was tortured. But when you're poor and you're black and you feel like don't nobody care, that was just the system of how they shoved us along. The game is all, it's, it's so rigged. You know, it's like, how do we always come up short year after year? Allegations and videos of police brutality have left a nasty taste in everyone's mouths and minds, raising questions and demands about changing police culture and funding. From what I understand, the funding that goes into the police department is, is very, very high, right? And at the same rate, we have a city suffering from gun violence. We have lack of programs, lack of resources, lack of real things for folks to be involved in. All that money don't need to go into the police. There are a lot of other programs and resources that could benefit, like home care providers, some of the lowest wage workers in the state. It's sad you would think that if we really are talking about the community, we would do what's necessary for the greater good of the actual community. That's Chandra Robinson again. She has family members who are cops. I get where they're coming from. I hear you. You go out into the world and you take a risk every day. But this is also something you signed up for. You signed up to protect people. If you see that a person is just being aggressive with another person just because of race, be a part of the change and making it better. Even in the George Floyd situation, you had two or three other officers that were standing there. And that man could still be alive today if someone just tapped him on the shoulder and said, hey, let's change this up. 
Costin says he didn't fully realize how much the system is rigged against being black and living in Inglewood until his mother had a couple of brain surgeries and was confined to a wheelchair. He needed a wheelchair lift for a home. We had to call the fire department to take her down the stairs because it was only me. And my stepdad wasn't strong enough. And I called and I called and I called all these types of programs, right? For my mom a wheelchair lift. They said, oh, we'll put you on the list. Oh, we don't have any funds or any money or this or that. And one day, you know, the, the fire department, he had on a white shirt, so I guess he was authority or whatever. And he said, man, you call every, every time she got to come out the house, she, this is the way she come out the house. Basically, my mom was trapped in the house. Only could come out if she had a doctor appointment. They wouldn't come up and have her down the stairs otherwise, right? He tells me, he says, your mom could have been got a wheelchair lift. She just lives in her own zip code. And he winked his eye at me. And I said, what? So I started doing my research and realized like in Bridgeview and Bridgeport and all these other communities, they were giving these wheelchair lifts out regularly. So I started raising, you know, the case manager started coming over and I started asking questions. Why she's not eligible for something simple as a wheelchair lift. She qualifies for everything. She's done work her whole life. Now she's sick. What is the plan of just throwing a nursing home? And I realized I ran through a lot of problems just off of us, our zip codes. And I'm starting to see all these barriers that she had to go through just to get something. The simple things, wheelchairs and, and, and a bed and a, and a Hoya lift and things that she deserved that they were giving out. And if you was in the right zip code, but for that, for that zip code, it was like, no, we had to jump through so many hoops and loops. So Costin got busy sharing what he found with his neighbors. I was knocking on doors and making sure like, hey, did you hear about this program? Uh, you know, about your grandma or about your mom and, you know, and, and kind of like just inform people, you know, and they don't understand the mazes that you have to run through. It's almost like the game was rigged. It was like we was the wrong color, we was the wrong zip code. So like, boo-hoo, that's how it goes. And it, it, it should be equal. We need to have people in office that represents the views that we represent and the demands that we represent when we march in the streets. Because if we don't have anyone in office that's supporting us in executing those demands, our march won't leave the streets. That's Ashley Mosley. She's a certified nursing assistant and a cook working at two skilled nursing homes and rehab centers in St. Louis. I want to do my part in making positive change. If my part means constantly informing my coworkers on what's going on and, hey, did you watch the news today? Hey, girl, you know today is election day. Don't forget to vote. You know, I'm known as that person. Sometimes people avoid me, but I have a lot of people that gravitate, and I make sure when those people gravitate that they have something to take with them when they leave. Ashley has three children and lived in Ferguson, Missouri, when Michael Brown was shot and killed by Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson in 2014. It was a horrible time, of course, uh, when Michael Brown was pretty much slayed in the streets. I stayed in the area. It's another apartment building that's really close. It was like living in a war zone. I remember one time where me and my children were going home. They were four years old and eight years old. And I would have to cover them up with jackets because our eyes were burned so bad from the tear gas. My neighbor, her car was actually vandalized. And when I called the police for her to file a report, the police told me that they weren't servicing my area and they hung up the phone on me. And at that time, I had an epiphany that no matter how many tax dollars that I paid into the government for the police to protect me, I was still discriminated against because of the area that I lived in. 
So she decided to do something about it. You know, you reach a point where you feel like enough is enough. And I have three sons. They're all African-American. And I'm concerned about their well-being and their future as well as mine. And the only way I feel like we're going to create change is by changing our judicial system. Ashley joined scores of others demanding that the medium security institution in St. Louis, known as the workhouse, be shut down. It's pretty much condemned. There's leaky ceilings, mold, rats, snakes. And the people that were there were there for poverty issues, like they couldn't afford to pay their traffic tickets. It's $16 million that's pushed off into this inhumane place year after year after year. But there are no improvements being made. There's still no heat. There's still no air. And we wanted to make a change. If we That's a YouTube clip of a Close the Workhouse rally in St. Louis this summer. We hit the streets of St. Louis, sometimes in the, in the harshest spots of St. Louis, telling people about the workhouse, about how much money is going into the workhouse, and how we want those funds to go to the community. We got such a warm and overwhelming response from the citizens. We did actions. We attended hearings. When COVID hit, everybody thought that we would stop, but we didn't. And the workhouse will be closed December 2020. So they heard us. Closing the workhouse was a pure manifestation of people in the streets doing the work, people in the office doing the work, and us getting results. And getting results that are permanent. There was a statistic that went along with the workhouse. One in every three Black men will experience the harsh conditions of the workhouse. Well, I have three Black sons. And I can sit here and say that they will never experience the harsh conditions of the workhouse because we shut it down. Back in Chicago, Chandra Robinson shares the same optimism that a change is going to come. We got to be honest, racism is a thing that's taught. The young kids now, they don't like that. We got a lot of young white kids that are starting to join in on this because they're seeing the culture in a different way. This future is their time. These kids are in control now. And I think that for us, it is our responsibility to be a support to them, to give facts, right? But don't take over. The same thing we ask for my allies. Cause you know it's only gonna get better. Yeah, the seasons know when to change. I'm Judith McCray with hope from the front lines. Oh, you know things never stay the same. Never stay the same. It's gonna get better. Thank you for joining Hope from the Front Lines. Our series is produced by Juneteenth Productions with funding support from the McCormick Foundation. Join us next week for another story of struggle, passion, and strength from essential caregivers of color protecting Chicago's most vulnerable during this COVID-19 pandemic. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are available. Do you have a story to share? Join us in the ongoing conversation on our Facebook page, Hope from the Front Lines.